As the God of absolutes is expunged from the human mind, and as the fear of God disappears from the hearts of men, the ability to think clearly and to think and function morally diminishes proportionally. It is not possible to be otherwise. The immutable law of Galatians 6-7 presides. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. When the fear of God and thus the obedience to his perfect commandments begins to dissipate, stupidity and immorality begins to reign and clarity of mind just disappears. Psalms 111 verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. His praise endureth forever. God's Word is the unassailable truth and the very fountain of certainty, a solid rock, a place to build a life that will last forever. Eternal soul building begins at a place Jesus calls born again. John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Have you been born again? born a literal second time, this time of the Spirit of God? Do you yearn for cleanness and certainty, for freedom and purpose, even for a personal relationship with God himself? On Calvary's hill, Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, made it possible. Will today be your day of salvation? Click on the Further with Jesus for childlike instructions and immediate entry into the kingdom of God. Now, for today's subject. God said, Exodus 34, 7, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and the fourth generation. God said, Jeremiah 43, 8 through 11, then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah and Tapanes, saying, Take great stones in thine hand, and hide them in the clay in the brick kiln, which is at the entry of Pharaoh's house, and Tapanes, in the sight of the men of Judah. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will send and take Nebuchadrezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will set his throne upon these stones that I have hid, and he shall spread his royal pavilion over them. And when he cometh, he shall smite the land of Egypt, and deliver such as are for death to death, and such as are for captivity to captivity, and such as are for the sword to the sword." God said, Genesis 1-1, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Man said, Our great academic leaders and scientists teach us there is no God of the absolutes, and we love to have it that way. We have been loosed from the Bible's chains. Now the record. Welcome to God Said, Man Said, feature 912, that will once again certify the supernatural authorship and marvelous inerrancy of God's holy Bible. All of these glorious features are archived here in text and streaming audio for your edification and as ammunition in the battle for the souls of men. Every Thursday Eve, God willing, they grow by one. Thank you for coming. May God's face shine upon you with light and truth. 
Inside faith resides all the good promises of God that are ultimately realized in what the saints know as the blessed hope, eternal, glorious life with the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost and all the host of heaven. Inside unbelief resides every physical and spiritual ill, and finally the first and second death, and ultimately eternal cognizant damnation in the lake of fire. For both camps, eternity never ends. It's so important to know the word of God is true and righteous altogether, because absolutely everything depends upon it. This feature will highlight God proofs, 191 to 195, and again, all the loopholes have been closed. It's true. Every jot and every tittle, all true. God proof, 191, Exodus 34, verse 7, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. Could God's word once again be accurate thousands of years before modern science begins to understand sins of the father to the third and fourth generation? Stay tuned. From the God Said, Man Said feature epigenetics and more sins of the father. There's no such thing as victimless crimes. The devastating effects of parental disobedience are far-reaching and just beginning to be seriously studied via the new science of epigenetics. This new science is turning old science on its head. Epigenetics is rewriting the rules of disease, heredity, and identity. The sins of the mother during pregnancy, birth, and onward into the child's development are somewhat well-known such as passing on to her children venereal diseases, as well as the effects of alcohol, smoking, the lack of breastfeeding, etc., etc. But the father seems to have escaped the scrutiny of the investigators. The headline in the March 29, 2008 issue of Science News reads, Dad's Hidden Influence. The subhead reads, A father's legacy to a children's health may start before conception and last generation. Excerpts follow. Fathers who smoke or are exposed at work to chemicals called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons put their children at risk developing brain tumors. Four decades ago, Gladys Friedler, professor emeritus of Boston University, was studying tolerance to narcotics, one of the first steps of addiction. To find out if a mother rat could pass tolerance on to her offspring along with antibodies and other immune factors, as some scientists theorize, filter exposed female rats to morphine before pregnancy. Babies of exposed mothers were born much smaller than average, and those babies also went on to give birth to tiny babies, even though the offspring had never encountered the drug. Friedler also gave male rats morphine before they bred. To my total disbelief and bewilderment, paternal exposure also affected progeny, Friedler said at the AAAS meeting. Her advisor dismissed the result. Morphine doesn't cause mutations, so the idea that males could hand down a trait without passing along a mutation seemed preposterous. But in recent decades, scientists have discovered 
that chemical modifications to DNA and proteins can change the way genes are packaged and regulated without changing the genes themselves. Such modifications are known as epigenetic changes. Epigenetic modifications act as a molecular scrapbook, preserving memories of events in parents' lives and handing them down to the next generation and beyond. Male rats exposed to a fungicide in the womb can pass tumors and diseases of the prostate and kidney down for at least three generations. The rats could provide the first model for how prostate disease is inherited, he says. Male babies born to mothers that had been injected with uh, fungicide had prostate problems that mimic those seen during human aging. The second generation rats also had more tumors kidney defects, and higher rates of abscesses, cysts, and other infections than unexposed control rats. Sperm cells in the testes of exposed rats also died more quickly than those in the control rats. Subsequent generations of male rats also had the prostate and testes defects, and both male and female offspring developed kidney problems and tumors. But only male rats could pass along the defects. The exposed rats bequeathing their fungicide legacy to their sons, grandsons, and great-grandsons, third generation, even though none of the later generations were exposed to the chemical, end of quote. In April 6, 2013, issue of Science News published a multi-page feature titled From Great-Grandmother to You, with a subhead which reads, Epigenetic Changes Reach Down Through the Generations. A few excerpts follow. Michael Skinner was among the first to document that certain chemicals could produce health effects across multiple generations without altering DNA. Exposing a pregnant rat to chemicals that disrupt the action of sex hormones could produce fertility problems that lasted at least to her great-great-grandchildren's generation, fourth generation, his group reported in Science in 2005. Those problems were transmitted through the male line, apparently by way of chemical tags called methyl groups on DNA. Evidence supporting that idea appeared in Nature in 2010. Rat fathers that ate a high-fat diet and became obese before mating passed along a propensity to become diabetic to their daughters, but not their sons, researchers in Australia reported. Estrogen isn't the only chemical that can pass its health effects down through generations. Researchers in Skinner's lab tested the effects of a variety of chemicals on ovarian health in rats. The team exposed pregnant rats to doses of chemicals people might encounter in everyday life. One was uh, vinclozolin, uh, the fungicide that gave the assist the idea of her experiments. Among the others were various components of plastics, including bisphenol A, pesticides such as uh, permethrin, and the mosquito repellent DET, dioxin, and, get this, jet fuel. All of the chemicals studied led to an increase in ovary problems, including fewer eggs and more cysts that lasted at least until the great-granddaughter's generation, Skinner's team reported, in May 2012, and PLOS-1. Some of the treatments led to 100% of the great-granddaughters developing ovarian cysts. 
There is no genetic mechanism that will give you that level of disease. None, says Skinner. Some of our phenomena are so robust, we couldn't explain it with genetics even if we wanted to. End of quote. The sins of one's parents being passed down to the third and fourth generation is somewhat disturbing. The idea of being handcuffed to another's deeds is not new to students of the Scriptures. It began when Adam and Eve sold their progeny, you and me, to sin. Each of us inherited that carnful, carnal excuse me, sinful nature, but God sent Jesus Christ to break the chain of our bondage. Jesus called it born again. Through this process, we are literally born a second time, this time of the Spirit, and become sons and daughters of the living God. All of the chains of carnal inheritance, even epigenetic ones, are broken. End of quotes. God Proof 192, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The suggestion by the ungodly is that the world's great minds reject the Bible and its Christ when the exact opposite is true. Vast numbers of the world's greatest scientists, educators, politicians, military strategists, and more were and are creationists. They believe that God created as shown below. Arguably, the most educated people populate the field of medicine, and over two-thirds believe the Bible was inspired by God. An article published by Business Wire, December 20, 2004, was a review of a national survey of 1,100 physicians. 74% of doctors believe that miracles have occurred. 73% believe they can occur today. 72% of American physicians believe religion provides a reliable and necessary guide to life. 58% attend worship services at least one time per month. 67% believe the Bible was inspired by God. 55% of doctors said they have seen treatment results in their patients that they would consider miracles. 51% pray for their patients as a group. 59% pray for individual patients. 67% of Americans' physicians encourage their patients to pray. This survey was conducted by HCD Research and the Lewis Finkelstein Institute of New York City. In a feature published by the Institute for Creation Research titled Bible-Believing Scientists of the Past, we find a faith-defaming statement that was made several decades ago that has become the rallying cry of the ungodly. The following paragraph is from the ICR feature. One of the self-serving arguments of modern evolutionists is their rather arrogant claim that creation scientists are not real scientists. No matter that a large number of creationists have earned authentic Ph.D. degrees in science, hold responsible scientific positions, and have published numerous scientific articles and books, if they are creationists, they are not true scientists. In a letter to the editor, Stephen Shaftesman of Rice, Rice University's Department of Geology says, for example, I dispute Henry Morris's claim that thousands of scientists are creationists. No scientist today questions the past and present occurrence of evolution in the organic world, end of quote. Concerning the men of faith and science, you'll find this listing in ICR. 
I will read the scientific discipline and the creation scientist who established it. Bacteriology, Louis Pasteur. Antiseptic surgery, Joseph Lister. Calculus, Isaac Newton. Celestial mechanics, Johann Kepler. Chemistry, Robert Boyle. Comparative anatomy, George A. Cavier. Computer science, Charles Babbage. Dimensional analysis, Lord Rayleigh. Dynamics, Isaac Newton. Electronics, John Ambrose Fleming. Electrodynamics, James Clerk Maxwell. Electromagnetics, Michael Faraday. Energetics, Lord Calvin. Entomology of Living Insects, Henry Fabre. Field Theory, Michael Faraday. Fluid Mechanics, George Stokes. Galactic Astronomy, William Herschel. Gas Dynamics, Robert Boyle. Genetics, Gregor Mendel. Glacial Geology, Louis Agassiz. Gynecology, James Simpson. Hydraulics, Leonardo da Vinci. Hydrography, Matthew Maury. Hydrostatics, Blaise Pascal. Ichthyology, Louis Agassiz. Isotopic Chemistry, William Ramsey. Model Analysis, Lord Rayleigh. Natural History, John Ray. Non-Euclidean Geometry, Bernard Ryman. Oceanography, Matthew Maury. Optical Mineralogy, David Brewster. Paleontology, John Woodward. Pathology, Rudolf Virchow. Physical Astronomy, Johann Kepler. Reversible Thermodynamics, James Zhao. Statistical Thermodynamics, James Clerk Maxwell. Stratigraphy, Nicholas Stino. Systematic Biology, uh, Carlos Linnaeus. Thermodynamics, Lord Calvin. Thermokinetics, Humphrey Davy. Vertebrate Paleontology, George A. Cuvier. 66% of the scientists just listed lived during and after Charles Darwin, and they were all, every single one, creationist. Every one. And Rabbi Daniel Lappin, considered one of America's most influential, influential rabbis today, conducted extensive modern research into this topic, concluding, well over 90% of all the scientific discoveries of the past thousand years have been made in nations where Christianity is the prevailing religion. Virtually every major discovery in physics, medicine, chemistry, mathematics, electricity, nuclear physics, mechanics, and just about everything else has taken place in Christian countries, end of quotes. In the beginning, God, of course, and all the true scientists said, Amen. God proof 193, Jeremiah chapter 43, 8 through 13. Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah and Tapanis, saying, Take great stones in thine hand, and hide them in the clay in the brick kiln, which is at the entry of Pharaoh's house, in Tapanis, in the sight of the men of Judah. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will send and take Nebuchadrezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will set his throne upon these stones that I have hid, and he shall spread his royal pavilion over them. And when he cometh, he shall smite the land of Egypt, and deliver such as are for death to death, 
and such as are for captivity to captivity, and such as are for the sword to the sword. And I will kindle a fire in the houses of the gods of Egypt, and he shall burn them and carry them away captives, and he shall array himself with the land of Egypt, as a shepherd putteth on his garment, and he shall go forth from thence in peace. He shall break also the images of Beth Shemesh that is in the land of Egypt, and the houses of the gods of the Egyptians shall he burn with fire. This historic account recorded by Jeremiah the prophet regarding the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar's defeat and spoiling of Egypt has been roundly ridiculed by biblical contrarians. But as you should expect, the skeptics have been knocked on their backsides. The following excerpts are from the Thompson Chain Bible's archaeology section under the heading 4440 Tapanes. Tapanes, now called Del Defne, lives in the Egyptian Delta near Lake Manzala, nine miles west of the Suez Canal. After the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar appointed Gedaliah governor over the remnant of Judah. Shortly thereafter, he was assassinated. Fearing reprisal by Nebuchadnezzar, Johanna, a surviving leader of the people, fled with the survivors of the massacre, including Jeremiah, to Tapanes. Soon afterward, an oracle of the Lord predicting Egypt's overthrow came through the prophet at Tapanes. Critical scholars long denied that this prophecy of Jeremiah and similar ones pronounced by the prophet Ezekiel were ever fulfilled, since no secular historical records of any invasion of Egypt by Nebuchadnezzar were known. This situation changed with the discovery of a fragmentary cuneiform tablet now in the British Museum, which states that Nebuchadnezzar indeed carried out a military campaign against Egypt in the 37th year of his reign, 568 B.C. Although the greater part of the tablet is lost, and thus the record and the outcome of this campaign, there can be no doubt that Nebuchadnezzar's military venture was successful fulfilling the prophet's prediction. Tapanes, which played a role in Jeremiah's prophecy, was excavated by Flinders Petrie in 1886 in the mound called by the local Arabs the Palace of the Jews' Daughter. He discovered a platform complex in front of the ruin of a large garrison-like castle which he took to be the ruins of Pharaoh's house. Nearby, three cuneiform inscriptions of Nebuchadnezzar were found by Arabs, but the actual stones which Jeremiah hid have not yet come to light. God's Word is the perfect history book. God Proof 194, Isaiah 40, 21 and 22. Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Several years ago, God said man said published a feature titled Cosmos Host Attacks Bible. Several paragraphs follow. According to astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, host of the television series Cosmos, a space-time odyssey introduced by then-U.S. President Barack Obama, he says this, If you start using your scripture, your religious text, 
as a source of your science, that's where you run into problems, and there is no example of someone reading their scripture and saying, I have a prediction about the world that no one knows, yet because this gave me insight, let's go test this prediction and have that theory turn out to be correct. In this series, Mr. Tyson also challenges God's account that he created the earth before the sun and the universe and proceeds to attempt to unravel the six-day creation narrative laid out in Genesis. But remember this, God's word cannot be broken. Proverbs chapter 30, 5 and 6. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Mr. Tyson wants to know, has anyone had a prediction about the world, a prediction they discovered in the plain reading of the word of God and succeeding in proving it correct? Christopher Columbus, whose first name means bearing Christ, held the lofty title of Admiral of the Ocean Sea. The following paragraphs are from the God Said Man Said feature Round Earth and Christopher Columbus. Prevailing wisdom at the time of Columbus was that the world was flat, and if you ventured past the line of danger, you would fall off the end of the earth. It should be noted that at about the same time Christopher Columbus was petitioning Isabella and Ferdinand in the court of Spain, in Nuremberg, Germany, a man named Martin Behaim unveiled what he called Earth Apple, the first round earth globe on record. Historians say it is safe to suggest that Columbus was not aware of Behaim's Earth Apple. 500 years ago, Columbus penned a book titled Libro de las Profecies, which in English translates to Book of Prophecies, and just in the 1990s has it become possible to consider its content in English. In K. Brigham's book titled Christopher Columbus, His Life and Discovery in the Light of His Prophecies, the following quote from Columbus is noted. This is Columbus's own words. At this time, I have seen and put in study to look into all the scriptures, cosmography, histories, chronicles, and philosophy and other arts, which our Lord opened to my understanding, I could sense his hand upon me, so that it became clear to me that it was feasible to navigate from here to the Indies, and he unlocked within me the determination to execute my idea. And I came to your highnesses with this ardor. All those who heard about my enterprise rejected it with laughter, scoffing at me. Neither the sciences, which I mentioned above, nor the authoritative citations from them were of any avail. And only your highnesses remained faith and constancy. Who doubts that this illumination was from the Holy Spirit? I attest that he, the Spirit, with marvelous rays of light, consoled me through the holy and sacred scriptures, encouraging me to proceed and continually without ceasing for a moment, they inflamed me with a sense of great urgency. I have already said that for the execution of the enterprise of the Indies, neither reason nor mathematics nor world maps were profitable to me. Rather, the prophecy of Isaiah was completely fulfilled, end of quote. And what does Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22 say? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. Mr. Tyson, 
Has anyone had a prediction about the world, a prediction that they discovered in the plain reading of the Word of God and succeeded in proving that prediction correct? The man's name is Matthew Mowry, and he holds the title of Father of Oceanography, Pathfinder of the Seas, and Father of Naval excuse me, Meteorology. This famous scientist developed the National Observatory and helped found the U.S. Naval Academy and National Weather Bureau, as well as being instrumental in laying the transatlantic telegraph cable. The following excerpts are from the God Said, Man Said feature, Paths in the Sea. The prophets of obedience are immeasurable, and so it is concerning the discoveries of one Matthew Fontaine Maury. Matthew Maury, known as the father of oceanography, was a U.S. Navy officer who lived during the 1800s. After an injury forced an early retirement, Mr. Maury was awarded the job of overseeing the depot of charts and instruments of the Hydrographic Office of the U.S. Navy spanning 20 years from 1841 to 1861. Matthew was an ardent follower of Jesus Christ and had complete confidence in the accuracy of the Word of God, a confidence that became immensely profitable to all mankind. He read Psalms 8.8 and Ecclesiastes 1.6 and saw the great practical significance of paths in the sea and circuits of the wind. It is Matthew Maury who discovered and plotted many of the wind circuits and ocean currents or paths in the sea, such as the 40-mile-wide, 2,000-feet-deep Gulf Current, the Japanese Current, the California Current, and more. The seagoing vessels in Maori's days applied these discoveries and cut down the time needed to cross the ocean by as much as three weeks. Today's air travel uses jet streams discovered by Matthew Maori. The state of Virginia erected a monument of honor to their native son, and in its plaque it reads, Matthew Fontaine Maori, Pathfinder of the Seas, the genius who first snatched from the oceans and atmosphere the secret of their laws. His inspiration, Holy Writ, Psalms 8.8, Ecclesiastes 1.6. The nearly three weeks of savings for seagoing vessels, as well as hefty savings in time and fuel for air travel, have registered enormous benefits, huge savings of man-hours, reduced cost of food and fuel, less wear and tear on the ships and planes, and more, resulting in a lower cost to ship goods and consequently a lower cost of merchandise and travel expense to the entire world. Obeying God's word is always a profitable thing to do. And Matthew Maury's verses, Psalms 8.8, The fowl of the air and the fish of the sea and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. Ecclesiastes 1.6, The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again, according to his circuits. End of quotes. On God Said, Man Said, we reference a host of modern-day scientists of considerable influence that all say yes to God, his Christ, and his holy word. The real question to the ungodly is to name one, great, life-enhancing discovery that is a product of the theory of evolution. They won't find any. 
God's word is true and righteous altogether. It is a place to build a life. God proof number 195, Matthew 27, 45 through 51. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. In the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, there was a particularly sacred veil that separated the Jewish people from the most holy place. Concerning this holy veil, Alfred Endersheim, author of the 1109-page tome, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, weighs in with the following. And now a shudder ran through nature as its sun had set. We dare not do more than follow the rapid outlines of the evangelical narrative. As the first token, it records the rending of the temple veil in two from the top downward to the bottom, as the second the quaking of the earth, the rending of the rocks, and the opening of the graves. Although most writers have regarded this as indicating the strictly chronological succession, there is nothing in the text to bind us to such a conclusion. Thus, while the rending of the veil is recorded first as being the most significant token to Israel, it may have been connected with the earthquake, although this alone might scarcely account for the tearing of so heavy a veil from the top to the bottom. Even the latter circumstance has its significance, that some great catastrophe betokening the impending destruction of the temple had occurred in the sanctuary about this very time is confirmed by not, confirmed, excuse me, by not less than four mutably independent testimonies, those of Tacitus, of Josephus, of the Talmud, and of earliest Christian tradition. The most important of these, are, of course, the Talmud and Josephus. The latter speaks of the mysterious extinction of the middle and chief light in the golden candlestick 40 years before the destruction of the temple. And both he and the Talmud refer to a supernatural opening by themselves of the great temple gates that had been previously closed, which was regarded as a portend of the coming destruction of the temple. We can scarcely doubt that some historical fact must underlie so peculiar and widespread a tradition, and we cannot help feeling that it may be a distorted version of the occurrence of the rendering of the uh, rending, excuse me, of the temple veil at the crucifixion of Christ. But even if the rending of the temple veil had commenced with the earthquake, and according to the gospel to the Hebrews, with the breaking of the great lintel over the entrance, it could not be wholly accounted for in this manner. According to Jewish tradition, there were indeed two veils before the entrance to the most holy place. The veils before the most holy place were 40 cubits, 60 feet long, and 20, 30 feet wide, of the thickness of the palm of the hand, and wrought in 72 squares, which were joined together, and these veils were so heavy that in the exaggerated language of the time, it needed 300 priests to manipulate each. 
if the veil was at all such as is described in the Talmud. It could not have been rent in twain by a mere earthquake or the fall of the lentil, although its composition in squares fastened together might explain how the rent might be as described in the gospel. Indeed, everything seems to indicate that although the earthquake might furnish the physical basis, the rent of the temple veil was, in reverence be it said, really made by the hand of God, end of quote. Jerome, a man renowned in the early church to live between 340 and 420 A.D., wrote in a letter to Hidabiah uh, that the huge lentil of the temple, which was over 30 feet long, weighing some 60,000 pounds, was splintered and broken and fallen. He connects this to the rending of the veil. Endersheim writes, And it would seem an obvious inference to connect again this breaking of the lentil with an earthquake. The Old Testament Amos prophesies of this event in Amos chapter 9, verse 1. I saw the Lord standing upon the altar, and he said, Smite the lentil of the door, that the post may shake, and cut them in the head, all of them. And I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away, and he that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. When God says yes, wise men and women, boys and girls, take notice. Wrangle as the skeptics may, the word of God stands true every jot and every tittle. God said, Exodus 34, 7, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. God said, Jeremiah 43, 8 through 11, then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah and Tappanes, saying, Take great stones in thine hand, and hide them in the clay of the brick kiln, which is at the entry of Pharaoh's house, and Tappanez in the sight of the men of Judah. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will send and take Nebuchadrezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will set his throne upon these stones that I have hid, and he shall spread his royal pavilion over them. And when he cometh, he shall smite the land of Egypt." and deliver such as are for death to death, and such as are for captivity to captivity, and such as are for the sword to the sword. God said, Genesis 1-1, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Man said, Our great academic leaders and scientists teach us there is no God of the absolutes, and we love to have it that way. We have been loose from the Bible's chains. Now you have the record. 